I just think it's so important for us to know where we've been, um, yeah. for us to to appreciate where we are today, to see where we still need to improve some things. Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 13 of season five, and today I'm sharing a conversation I had with Kim Vogel Sawyer. Kim is known for writing gentle stories of hope. And today we're going to talk about one of those stories called The Tapestry of Grace, which just released on Tuesday, April 18th. Um, But first, I want to do something a tiny bit different from my other episodes. I'm going to ask you, if you have not done this yet, and you listen on Apple Podcasts, if you enjoy Historical Fiction Unpacked, please pause this episode and just go to the show where you see like the list of episodes in the podcatcher, Apple Podcasts, scroll down to where it allows you to um, give a five uh, a rating. Hopefully you'd give it a five-star rating if you're listening all the time and leave a review. We have, I know we are creeping up on 20,000 downloads, which is amazing to me, but um, I only, I don't have 20,000 reviews. I don't expect to have 20,000 reviews, But I expect those of you who love this show and listen on Apple Podcasts to leave me a review so that other um, listeners, other lovers of historical fiction can find the show. You have no idea how much it helps a podcast. So I'm going to pause right here and you pause too and go leave a review. Did you do it? Did you leave a review? Thank you so much. Now I will get right to my conversation with Kim Vogel Sawyer. Kim, thank you for joining me on the show today. It's so wonderful to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. Yes, I'm happy to have you. Your latest novel, The Tapestry of Grace, released on Tuesday. Well, it will have released on Tuesday when this episode comes out. Can you tell me about this book? This is historical, set in Kansas, um, the late 1800s. And the little, I think if somebody said, what's your elevator pitch? This would be it. When a group of Kansas women start a Froenverein, which is a benevolent society devoted to aiding widows and orphans, life changes for more than just the hurting people they seek to help. Mm. Yeah. Now, I did. I got to read this book, which I don't always get to read the entire novel before an interview, but um, I happen to have enough time this time. So um, it was so unique for me. What inspired you to write this novel? Well, I love to write stories set in Kansas because that's where I've grown up. It's mm-hmm. home. I also like to write stories that include the, the Mennonites or the German background because that's my family history. This particular story um, with the Froenverein actually came about. I was researching a different story. I was looking for German newspapers and came across this article about the Froenverein started in a Lutheran church in New York by German immigrants, and it just piqued my interest. And mm-hmm. when I found out that it spread all across the United States over time, anywhere there were German communities, these Froenvereins were springing up. I thought, okay, this is too much fun. I have to use this somehow. And then, you know, once I get to that point, the characters start talking to me. And right. things just go from there. I have so many people in my head. <laughs> <laughs> they just have to find the right place to land. 
And so this was a perfect place for Martina and Augusta and Conrad and the children who had their stories told. Yes, it was just lovely. And I, this was the first of your books that I've read Uh and it was just so, such a beautiful, peaceful story. So it was lovely. Well, thank you. When I started writing, um, I made a promise to my mom that I would not write anything that would embarrass her (laughs) Mm. or that I would be embarrassed for my former students or my children or grandchildren to read. So when someone says it was a peaceful book, that really means a lot to me because um, I think when something is peaceful, it's easy to get absorbed and stay around. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want the reader to be able to do, to stay with the characters and see their story all the way to the end. Right. Now, you're characters, am I correct? They're Mennonite? Yes. yes. I probably and- don't emphasize that a great deal in this particular book, but the the history that is formulated with this story, it's it relates to my Mennonite heritage. Right. So that is part of your heritage. It is. Um, mm-hmm. and, and can you tell me more about that? Well, it's, it's interesting because both sides of my family immigrated to America from Russia. Mm-hmm. My dad's family was always in Russia. My mom's family was originally in Germany. They were there until the late 1700s and really being persecuted pretty severely. They did not believe in infant baptism and mm-hmm. that was looked upon poorly by the leadership. And they were also ones that didn't want to send their sons to war. So that didn't set well either. Right. So um, in the late 1700s, Catherine the Great in Russia invited the Mennonites to come to Russia with the guarantee they could live on this grassy plain that needed to be tamed. They were very good farmers, so she knew that they could be a benefit to the country. But she promised that they could govern themselves, they could practice their religion freely. And so hundreds of, of Mennonites left Germany at that time. My ancestors, a part of that number, and settled in Russia. And those promises were kept for about a hundred years. And then new leadership started putting governmental rules on the Mennonites living in Russia along Mm -hmm. the Malachna River, um, requiring their sons to join the military. And the persecution started again. And so in 1872, there was quite an influx of Mennonites from Russia that came into America, including my great-grandparents. They were mm. quite young at the time, but they, they came. Mm-hmm. And um, they settled in Mountain Lake, Minnesota. Um, but I use Kansas because that's where my dad's relatives settled. So I have a little bit of my mom's background, a little bit of my dad's background um, represented in this story. Right. That's I love it when authors can work in some of their background. Now, do you follow the Mennonite faith yourself? I was in the Mennonite church until the the late 1970s. Um, I got married. I started attending a um, Assembly of God Church for briefly. And uh-huh. then I was part of a um, evangelical free congregation. And then we went back to the Mennonite church uh-huh. for a number of years until our kids were, um, our oldest daughter was in high school. 
And then we start attending a Southern Baptist church. So, wow, <laughs> that is a displaced Mennonite because I mean, the majority of my life was in the Mennonite church. And I have found doctrinally Southern Baptist and Mennonites are, are, are pretty close. Okay. Perhaps a little less um, conservative and traditional in their worship services, but the belief system is intact and that's what matters to me. Mm hmm. So, yeah. That's yeah, so interesting. We I live in Pennsylvania, which has, um, well, part of it's the southern part of Pennsylvania has a lot of um, Mennonite mm-hmm. population, and but I had so I knew a bit about Mennonite and know some myself, but I had not heard about Russia uh-huh. being like a um a safe haven, I guess, for yeah, it was Mennonites a number of years. Yeah, unfortunately, quite a number of the Mennonites who stayed in Russia who didn't emigrate in the 1870s during the early 1900s. Um, things were very, very unpleasant for them there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm very grateful that my great grandparents came when they did. It gave me an opportunity to live up in a live grow up in a country where I had a lot of freedom. Right. Yeah. You include some orphan children in this book. Mm-hmm. So some of the kids have lost one parent or another, but several are completely orphaned. So um, why did you include that element? What are you hoping that readers will get from that? Well, you know, I have always been, uh, I care about orphans and half orphans. Both of my parents lost their mothers when they were very young. And then mm-hmm. my dad lost her, my mom lost her dad um, when she was 19. So mm-hmm. I grew up with that realization that my parents' lives were impacted greatly by the loss of a parent. I mean, it mm-hmm. changed the trajectory of their lives, which you can well imagine. Yes. When I was a little girl, my only remaining grandparent, which was my dad's dad, remarried a woman who actually was an orphan train writer. She came to Kansas as a toddler um, Mm. because her mother passed away. Her dad couldn't take care of her. And so these were instrumental people in my lives who'd been impacted by parental loss and Mm -hmm. just that that brought. As an adult, I became involved with an orphanage in Guatemala called Casa de Mi Padre. I I help support that. It's um, just a wonderful place. So I think there's just always been a little part of me that, that knows, you know, God cares about the orphan Mm -hmm. and we're, we can be part of his family and we will never be orphaned when we're part of his family. So it is something that's worked its way into quite a number of my stories just because it is so much a part of my heart. Um, and of yes. course, the, the orphan train gets worked in just a little bit in this story as well. And I, I always love to honor my Tanti, is what I called her. She she tried to teach me to say Tanta for, uh, for auntie yeah. <laughs> when I was little. And I, I couldn't get the Tanta, but I called her Tanti. So uh, I, I try to um, honor her a little bit um, by incorporating that when I can, too. You know, yeah, I force it in a story, but if it fits, it fits. Right, and this did fit beautifully. I mean, that, that I, I did love that part and learning. I love learning more about it. So even like the Mennonites, what I learned more about the Mennonite faith and and their history, and then also the orphan train that you worked in. That that was really cool. I had, you know, I knew a little bit, but I can always learn more. So, well, I'm a former history teacher, so there's a little part of me that really always has to try to <laughs> yes <laughs> work a lesson in there somewhere too. 
Oh, that's good. That's one of the things I enjoy about historical fiction. So Me too. Yes. So what are some of the other themes that you hope readers will pick up on in this story? Well, I honestly hope that readers will recognize that, you know, God is always at work. Even when we can't see his hand, um, we can trust his heart, that to Mm -hmm. know that he has our best interests at heart, that he's always working to um, bring healing and um, to work his his will where we find our place of peace in our lives. And I liked watching these characters, you know, they're doing their thing and slowly being molded where they need to go. And I think that God does that a lot in our lives. We don't always recognize it. So I hope that that will be seen in these characters and that um, maybe they'll trust God a little bit more of their own personal lives with things that are going on, that there is a, a greater purpose than maybe we can see in them in the immediate that will be made more clear as time goes by and build our trust in him. Right. Yes. I love that. You're talking about these history lessons and something else I learned (laughs) from your book, you describe one of the characters making coffee and I'm going to read just a little bit of uh, the description. She readied the ground beans in the little basket and poured hot water over them. After settling the domed lid in place, she set the pot aside. It would take a little while for the coffee to brew. So is she using a French press? <laughs> <laughs> well, and how did you find out how, um, you know, Mennonites would have brewed coffee in Kansas in 1895? <laughs> have I mentioned that my dad is a museum curator? <laughs> no. <laughs> Whenever I need like the implements that the farmers would have used or Mm. the kitchen um, pots and and coffee percolators, you know, um, the the stove that they would have used, I can go to the Inman, Kansas Museum and say, Daddy, show me what they would have had in their house, you know, 1895. And he's, when I was a little girl, I thought my dad knew everything. I'm 62. I'm still convinced. <laughs> There's very little he does not know. And so this is what I did. I went to the Inman Museum and I said, Dad, what might have been used in a Mennonite kitchen? Because they have a Mennonite farmhouse there. What mm. would have been used in this time period? And I mean, it's it, it kind of a French press in that you, you put the beans in the basket, but it's kind of also like a, a percolator. Um, but it would have been used on the stove, not, you know, plugged in to an outlet. Right, right. Um, but yeah, that <laughs> little things like that, it, it's kind of fun. Yeah, well, there was a lot of detail like that in your book. And I just love that because sometimes there isn't. And even I write historical fiction. So my, I just wrote a book set in 1879. Uh And the only thing I could discover that they had for sure was what were called coffee boilers. So Uh they would like boil the beans. And because I I believe 1879 was before the percolator was really widely used. At least that's what I could. Yes. Yeah. I think that actually didn't come out if I'm remembering. And of course, I don't have my research in front of me. Of course It would have been the late 1800s. And Mm -hmm. Martina would have had um, and Augusta, for that matter, because her husband spoiled her, they would have had yes. some of the latest gadgets. Right, right. Um, so tell me more about 
your research and writing process other than, you know, calling your dad <laughs> to find out about <laughs> it's pretty handy. Yeah. Well, I love to go to the mu- to the library also. You know, I do mm. a lot of research online because it's convenient. Yes. But I told my fifth graders, you know, if you can't confirm something by three sources online, mm-hmm. don't automatically buy it because anybody can throw up a website. It doesn't have to be accurate. But if I go to the library and I can find a printed book, particularly books that were printed 100 years ago, 50 years ago, I can be pretty sure that what I'm reading is correct. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of times I go and I'll just go to the, the resource librarian and say, hey, you know, I'm writing a book. It's set in this time period. I need a ship that would have carried my characters from Russia to New York. Um, can mm-hmm. you help me out? And they're wonderful. They're such an incredible resource and so knowledgeable and I'm always happy to help. I've never encountered a grumpy librarian. Can't say that right. about everywhere else I go, but, <laughs> <laughs> but they're always so helpful. And then I try to keep, because I do write a lot of historical novels set in Kansas. I said a, a, a lot of my stories have characters that have a German or Russian background. So I have a number of books on in my personal library here that I've collected over the years that are helpful as well. But there's mm-hmm. just something about digging into that book and one little detail leads you to another. Pretty soon you can be chasing a lot of rabbit trails. I'm sure you know that too. Yes. But what's cool about that is, I mean, this story came about because of a rabbit trail. Oh, um, yes. A little something that I uncovered when I was researching something else. And it, it just sprang a new story to life. So it's exciting to go researching. Yes. I never know what I'm going to encounter. Yes, that's that's right. That's what I find too. Um, so can you tell me about your path to publication? You said you were a history teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and how did you start writing books and become a published author? Well, I'll try to give that in a nutshell because I know we don't have all day. <laughs> <laughs> I have always been, I always wanted to be a writer. Um, I, when I started college, I went in as a journalism and English major because my goal was to be a published author someday. Mm-hmm. And I tripped over life, went rolling in another direction and ended up teaching elementary school. But I was still writing. I started writing seriously in 1981. I started submitting manuscripts to publishers in 1991. Mm-hmm. In the late 1990s, my health began to deteriorate, and I was oh. not able to continue teaching full-time anymore, and mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> ended up using my morning hours at home to write. During that time, my dad took it upon himself to contact, you know, back then we didn't have all this digital printing. If right. you were going to have a book printed on your own. It was a little costly. But he contacted American Christian Writers Press, which at the time was owned by Steve Labe. might be a name mm-hmm. familiar to a lot of people if they're familiar with Christian publishing. Yes. Um, he owned a little printing press. And dad hired him to print my first novel, um, which was called A Seeking Heart, set in a Mennonite community in Mountain Lake, Minnesota. And we published or printed um, 5,000 copies of that. And I thought, you know, I've got to sell this thing now. (laughs) (laughs) So I did some research online to find out, you know, where can I sell this thing? Stumbled upon a group called American Christian Fiction Writers and noticed that they had a conference coming up. Mm. So I joined that group. I went to that conference in 2002. Mm -hmm. And that's where I met my, my agent, um, gave, 
her copy of the book and I signed with the Heartline Agency. Oh, and, yes. Um, so that's kind of where things started. I was with, with my dad. Obviously, my parents are instrumental in my life. Um, mm-hmm. Taking it upon themselves, they were really afraid I would never get to see my dream come true because my health was so horrible. Oh, wow. And so they wanted to have that happen. Of course, we had no idea at that time what God would do. Um, mm-hmm. I with the with an agent um, in 2000, actually in early 2003, after meeting in 2002, um, and 2005 is when I signed my first um, traditional contracts. I actually signed between March and November of 2005. I signed with three different companies, a total of 10 books. Oh my goodness. So when the door opened, I basically got drop kicked through it, <laughs> and I've been writing um, full time ever since I've been very, very blessed. I, you know, wanting to be an author, I just, I envisioned one book on a library shelf and I could have been happy with that. And mm-hmm. here I am, this is my 60th project released. And wow. Grace, and it's just so far beyond anything I imagined for myself. I really am truly very blessed. Wow. That's amazing. You, you said, was it 10 contracts between in one year <laughs> and yeah well they signed that in a like a six-month period i signed books um, for 10 different books with three different companies three heart songs um three um contemporary i was actually believe it or not the very first in the the christian genre to do old order mennonite contemporary stories um there was oh, one wow. show, um beverly Lewis and um, Wanda Brunstetter and a couple of others, but I was the first to do Old Order Mennonite. Wow. Had three of those and then two with, with Bethany House, two historicals. So yeah, I'm uh, actually four, I'm sorry, I signed for four different ones with Bethany House. So it really, it was, uh, it was a dream come true. It was overwhelming. It was fantastic all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have those books written already because you had been writing or well have- i had books written but none of um, other than the, the first one i signed with bethany house um none of them were written at that time wow um yeah uh, so you had a lot of work to do i had a lot of work to do and fortunately i it, i was able to resign from my teaching position and throw myself into writing full time mm-hmm. and I write fairly quickly, or did back then. You know, you get older, a lot of things slow down. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, um, and it worked. I was writing three or four full-length novels a year, and they multiplied like bunnies. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, it has definitely been an interesting ride, and I'm so grateful for it, because I've met so many wonderful people that I wouldn't have any other way. Um, right. publishing. I mean, who'd think we would be sitting here chatting today? <laughs> I, I know. It's it's really amazing. All the, the people you can meet through the publishing industry mm-hmm. and and through technology too. Oh, I mean. yeah. Yeah. So you, you write both historical and contemporary. What are you working on now? You mentioned to me before that you had been um, on deadline maybe last week. Yes. I turned in a, a historical novel uh, last Friday. My first novel set in Texas. Oh, okay. I've never written one in Texas before. Um, and it's not titled yet, mm-hmm. but it's um, it was based on a little piece of historical um, background that a friend of mine shared with me, a little tidbit 
years ago, she sent me this little tiny news article about the Baraka Home for Women, which was open to rehabilitate prostitutes and provide a safe haven for women who were pregnant out of wedlock. Mm. And my friend, when she gave me that, that little newspaper clipping, she said, now, I want you to write a story that proves there are no losers in God's eyes. And so that's the story I just turned in. Wow. And I'm, I'm excited about it. It's unique to anything I've done before. Mm-hmm. Um, the setting, obviously, and t- the, um, the, the theme behind it. Uh, right. This is unique to what I've done before. So we'll see how that goes. I'm eager to see what the publisher titles it. They usually do such a fabulous job and they do such a fabulous job with my covers. So yes, yeah, we'll see what happens. But yeah, I mean, it's a ways off. It won't release until spring of 2000, 2024. <laughs> next, so next spring. So strange. <laughs> <laughs> it does. I feel like we're in a futuristic movie or something when we yeah. say the years that are coming up. You mentioned how you love your covers. The cover of the Tapestry of Grace is just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they did a, did a fabulous job. I mean, it represents Kansas so well. Mm-hmm. And I just love that little little um, Valden is just right there on the cover. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. So this is a question I ask all my guests. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? I'm going to give a quote that my dad gave me years ago. Um, History is like the rudder on a ship. It's behind us. We can't see it. But without it, we can't go where we need to go. Hmm. I just think it's so important for us to know where we've been, um, for us to, to appreciate where we are today, to see where we still need to improve some things, Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I, I know there's a lot of um, things in history that make us cringe, but sometimes we need to be uncomfortable so right. that we don't revisit things that shouldn't have happened in the first place. So I, 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 I love writing historical novels. I love setting them in time periods that we can't visit any other way. I mean, how are we going to learn about it unless we revisit it? Right. So, um, yeah, I. I'm a real strong proponent of teaching history, teaching history as it was, not the way we wish it had been, Mm -hmm. and learning from that, uh, making ourselves better because we know what used to be. And not all of it was bad. There are some things we do need to hang on to that we set aside. And uh, maybe we need to revisit those rudders a little bit. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that is true. Not to get political. I'm not trying to do that. (laughs) (laughs) No. Well, it's hard to avoid sometimes anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Well, this has been a wonderful conversation, Kim. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? Well, I'm most active on Facebook, so they can find me there. I'm Kim Vogel Sawyer, comma, author slash speaker. I love to love to communicate with readers. You can also find me on my website, which is just KimBogleSawyer.com. Really easy to locate me there. And I do a daily devotion both on Facebook and on my website. And I hope that that's encouraging to people. Yes, I'm sure it will be. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I really enjoyed visiting with you. Well, my friends, wasn't Kim just delightful? I so enjoyed that conversation. 
I want to remind you to go to the show notes and make sure that you check out the links to her books and the links to all the other ways you can support Historical Fiction Unpacked. So I always leave you with a quote, and I wanted to find the one that Kim shared from her father, but I couldn't find that, but I found a different one that I really like. So these are the words of Warren W. Wearsby. The past can be a rudder that guides you, or an anchor that hinders you. Leave your mistakes with God and look to the future by faith. So keep reading historical fiction, my friends, and I will talk to you again next week.